This is an ABC podcast. Hello. Welcome to the Minefield. We'll lead Ali. My name's Scott Stevens. His. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life on this program. Typically, we fail. Today is one where um, I think Scott and I disagreed on whether or not there's actually a topic here to be discussed, which I think mm. is a fabulous starting point for an episode of the Minefield. It's almost like when you make a, a le- an application for leave to appeal in the High Court. And you have to prove to them or demonstrate to them that this is a case worth hearing. So what they do is hear the case, write a full judgment on it, and then decide whether it was worth hearing it. (laughs) I think it's going to be one of those kinds of shows. Hello, Scott. Hey, Willie. Look, even if we disagree somewhat on whether the topic has... Are we discussing whether the topic has merit? I don't think we're quite discussing that. I think we're... it's It's not quite that. But what we... I think the very... The fact that the topic itself is up for grabs or is up for some debate, I think that may well point us towards a possible, especially at the end of a year like this, a kind of hopeful prospect for our political and common life. Anyway, I find oh. I, I, I found your I found your provocation when we were discussing the topic. Uh, really, really helpful, and I'm in fact more convinced in my re- in my original skepticism than I was when I first voiced that skepticism yeah. to you. Yeah, it'll be it'll be good. This will be right. fun. So, for context, um, I, I sort of said, "Hey, what do you think about the protests that we've seen in Melbourne?" Which yeah. I, I would say is also, I mean, the spirit of which or the energy of which seems to have carried into the Parliament this week. Um, mm. Which the, is really interesting. Which actually. is interesting. Yeah, in the form yeah. of One Nation, but also some of the shall we say, One Nation adjacent um, members of the coalition, particularly mm-hmm. in Queensland. Um, and so I said, what do you think about this? And and your response was basically to say, oh, that's just nothing, right? That's just the, the last gasp of a particular kind of um, response to the pandemic. And I said, well, from here, here being Melbourne, mm-hmm. you're in Brisbane, um, mm-hmm. from here it actually feels like something might have taken root is now just going to be a permanent part of our um, political landscape, by which I don't mean there will be protests every day. I just mean that sort of, that kind of, that brand of political response. And so that's the, I think that's just the, that's a neat enough sketch of our initial disagreement. Yeah, beautiful. Perfect. Okay. So how do you want to set this up then? Well, uh, why don't we begin by saying that the way that you evaluate, or the way that one evaluates the relative importance or unimportance of the protests that we've seen. And, you know, it is worth pointing out that these protests stand at the end of a series, end of a, a wave, if you like, of demonstrations, uh, not just demonstrations that we've seen across the course of the pandemic, but demonstrations that have been increasing in intensity, uh, inversely proportional to the seeming threat posed by the coronavirus to the common life of various people in capital cities, particularly Melbourne. So as the threat of the virus... virus, less threatening, the protests get bigger. Yes, But that makes sense, right? Of course it does. Of course it does. Because as it gets less threatening, it becomes more political. 
Like yes, every that's exactly right. You get less unanimity at the political level. You get less bipartisanship at the political level. You get less consensus when it comes to the measures that need to be taken. You get a kind of waning support for the existing measures that are being employed. And you get a kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You get a kind of dreaded half acquiescence to the prospect of further such measures being employed in the future. In other words, when you're in the thick of it, then you're willing to cede a certain degree of trust to the government to do what needs to be done in order to protect lives and livelihoods. As something like normal life begins to reassert itself, or, or as the full extent of abnormal life, disrupted employment, um, the mental health and emotional toll, that wave upon wave upon wave of lockdown has been inflicting upon uh, the lives of many, many people. As these things begin to build up, then there becomes that kind of collapse in confidence. I think it's probably worthwhile pointing out, though, Willie, that especially in comparison to the United States, um, state and federal governments came into the pandemic and began the pandemic with incredible le- levels of trust on the part of the, of the populations of the nation and of the state. So when we talk about a kind of decline, or even, even if we were to talk about a precipitous decline, which I'm not sure there has been actually, but if we were to talk about a decline in trust, a kind of exasperation and exhaustion that's now spilling out onto the streets, we're talking about that from a very, very, very high level. So that any decline is noteworthy. I think any decline may well be portentous, but it doesn't mean that the sky is falling in. Uh, it means that we are coming from a very, very high level to to begin with. When you so say a high level, me, can I ask, at what point are you taking that base condition? Uh, well, within the first two months, we were looking at somewhere between two-thirds and four-fifths support for for various levels of even quite extreme government measures. Sorry, so you're even taking by, your reading early on in the pandemic rather than before the pandemic? Uh before the pandemic, um, but I mean, even by say September last year and earlier this year, we're still looking at support in the high in in the in the high fifties to low sixties. Uh, and then, if you have, if you simply take a reading, I mean, one of the things I should say, Waleed, that's been kind of serendipitous about the entire experience of the last two years is that we haven't had a federal election take place. I yeah. think that's been a very good thing. It's created the conditions in which a degree of federal bipartisanship could take place. We have, however, had state elections. And in both state elections, in Queensland and in Western Australia, there's been a resounding majority in favor of the two states that have taken very, very, very harsh measures, especially when it comes to border controls. So, uh, yeah, you know, but, I, but, I, I mean, uh, yeah, serious crises favor incumbents. Yes. So, right. I mean, you have to be an incumbent that really, really does a terrible job to lose an election in a situation like that. And it has to be on the scale of Donald Trump's mismanagement, really. Yeah, I think that's right. And even then, he got far closer to winning it than, uh, you know, um, I think most people recall, right? So... Um, a coin, a coin flip, I believe, is the way that we described it shortly after. I mean, it really could have broken in another direction, and just how different the world would have looked. Yeah, although it was, mm. it was kind of less close than it looked at that moment, wasn't it? Yes, because that's the right. It's true. So it was somewhere in between how we remember it and how it felt on the day. But anyway, yeah, <laughs> we're not doing um, U.S. election 
2020 sophology at the moment, so I'll leave that mm. behind. But, sophology, but, isn't that wonderful? Oh, thank you. It's not on the bingo card either. It might be the no, first time. No, it's not. No, it's not. Yeah. Um, I just think the, the reason I asked the question about the point at which you're taking the reading is I think it's significant because no one would have said in January 2021, sorry, January 2020 mm-hmm. or December 2019, that we had high levels of trust in government or that we had high levels of trust in media. We've seen a sort of growing informal and independent vote in Australian politics. The two-party system really only being held together by preferential voting Mm. rather than first-past-the-post voting. If we had a system like exists in Europe, then we would have a European result where no one can form a majority and it's just all coalitions, right? So Mm. it's really our political system that's the only thing that gives us the sort of the veneer or, or the the ghost of stability in our politics. And you remember the, you know, the, the black summer bushfires that happened, that was the Hawaii trip with Scott Morrison. There was kind of a, mm-hmm. there was a level of anger in the air towards him, but I think just at a level of, of distrust of government and media had been growing really steadily. And then you're right, the, the, the pandemic arrives and there are all these polls showing really interesting things, right? So trust in government's really high, trust in media was, was really high. And I, I feel like there are a couple of readings you could have of that. One is that actually we like to say we're disillusioned with these things, but deep down we're not. And so we're kind of acquiescent when it comes down to it. Yeah. And when it really comes to Mm. the crunch, we go, you know what? They're not all that bad. We just like to pretend they are for sport. But in a genuine crisis, we can trust them. Um, Or both politics and media, this is an alternative reading, both politics and media changed their behaviour so dramatically because the crisis was real that mm. suddenly we saw politicians being honest with us, levelling with us, making compromises. We saw unions and a coalition government at the federal level working together on what to do about industrial relations, at least for the period of crisis in the pandemic. Um, we saw the media really toning its sensationalism down, fewer hot takes, relying more on experts, all that sort of stuff. And so we won back the trust, even if only for mm. a short period, of the public. Now, I'm not sure which of those readings is true, but I suspect the answer to that question is really important because... Yes. Can I just add one thing, though, to that list that you just gave? The sure. other thing that we saw, I think, was a relative recession of the centrality of the federal government and a reassertion yes. of the importance of state and territory governments. Yes. Um, I think going into the future, it's going to be very difficult to overestimate the importance of that particular shift. And one of the things that I wonder about is whether that shift, the recession of the federal government, the importance of state and territory governments, if that's not going to be one of the more lasting changes in our common and democratic life. Okay, but if we are then going to look at what's happening right now and say, are we seeing a radicalisation in our politics, right? And the reason we're talking about trusting government is that radicalization really, I mean, you know, I can talk forever about models of radicalization and all this sort of stuff, but, mm. but when it comes down to it, one way of understanding radicalization is that it is the product of a um, deep disillusionment with government mm. and the structures of power. That's really what it is, right? So in other words, you embrace radical positions or radical politics or radical remedies because you refuse to believe that conventional ones have any worth. Mm. And that's what pushes you to to those positions. The thing may about I add one that, thing to that? May I add yeah, one thing to sure. it? And I'm really interested that you even included the term remedy there, because what that begins to signal is that what legitimates 
pursuing these more, uh, let's say, radical remedies through more radical means is the relative moral, possibly even religious in many respects, importance that's accorded to that end. In other words, what is being sought is of such transcendental value that not only are our current mechanisms not up to the task, but our current mechanisms are so hopelessly compromised or so admired in whatever the opposite of that transcendental goal is, that something far more radical, something even law-breaking needs to be done in order to uh, in order to meet the demands of that higher law. I mean, this is the this is the justification given for various forms of civil disobedience. For instance, there's a yeah. higher law that then justifies the breaking of terrestrial law. Yeah. Uh, and so I think it's it's the importance of the goal being sought, the extent to which it can be written in capital letters. Let's put it uh, yeah. that then gives a degree of sanction to pursuing fairly what would in other circumstances be um, be extreme or highly objectionable means. So capital letters, freedom, for example. Yes, yep. thank you. That's exactly what I had in and mind. And there is something very interesting, and I, and I want to mark this. I think I probably have to come back to it, but I really want to mark it. There's something very interesting about how American the language of this protest is. <laughs> because I think that's... Did you a, see the Trump flags? Did you see the Trump flags? Uh, I don't even know whether I saw them anymore. There I, were I, Donald I, Trump, make America great again flags outside Victoria's Parliament. Right. I certainly saw weekend. caps and things like that. But anyway... Yeah. So that's a very important thing to note, and, and I want to come mm. back to what I think the significance of that is later. So please remind me if I forget. But what I'm, I'm coming to your localization of politics point. Mm. When politics becomes local in that way, I wonder if the space for radicalization opens up. Interesting. Because mm. I would say that's probably true in America. Like the extent to which that politics has become radicalized in that Trumpian way does seem to be geographic, right? It's it's area by area. It's fueled by certain premiers or, or sorry, uh, governors or Congress people or whatever, right? Mm. That there is, it, it's a very different country if you live in certain parts of Florida than it is if you live in New York or Seattle, right? Mm. And the politics of it's different. Um, and I wonder if a similar thing is true in Australia. So why why did this happen in Melbourne? Well, there are a few reasons. You could say Melbourne... Was, became the most locked down city in the world. It's a city whose spirit and psyche has been tested to the limits and perhaps broken. There are a lot of mm. damaged people now who are very angry about a lot of things and trust nothing because they feel like their lives have been ruined, all that sort of stuff. Okay, that's probably true. But I also wonder if part of it is that Victoria is probably Australia's most progressive state to the extent mm. these things can be coherently plotted on a graph. And as a result of that, it's the one most likely to inspire that kind of reactionary backlash yeah. Uh, yeah, to it. that's right. Right? Also, Victoria has a government that not only is unashamedly progressive in the way it talks, and you can have an argument about its policy, but in the way that it talks, it's a form of progressivism that has been quite partial to just the use of government force on things. Right? It reached for vaccination mandates on a scale far greater than New South Wales mm -hmm. and far quicker than any other state did, perhaps because other states haven't had to think about it because they're COVID zero states or whatever, but nonetheless, that's what it's done. Um, the approach to lockdown was very much a stick first, carrot second type approach, I think you could argue. Yep. And that's not to say that that wasn't necessary or the right call. I'm not getting into that argument. I'm just saying that 
that's the atmospherics of it. Mm. Um, and yet it was a state that kind of kept having its capital city go into lockdown. So there's questions of government failure or not. And so the, the politics of, of Victoria got extremely polarised, right? But it's really only on a local level that I think you could have seen the intensity of that response. I feel like, and maybe this is pure speculation, so I could be wrong. I feel like if it was a situation like New Zealand where it was just a federal government or a national government that was in charge, the intensity of this would have been harder to maintain. Hmm. But then once established, and you see this with the Trumpist stuff, once established, it migrates. So now you have threats of beheading against Mark McGowan. Hmm. You have... One Nation senators releasing a fellow senator's private phone number um, with all the threats that that is uh, not even invite, like soliciting mm. effectively. And this, of course, on top of the, you know, the, the gallows and the sort of execution style imagery of the protests out the front of the Victorian parliament. And this is why I suspect we're looking at something that has seeded now rather than a last gasp, that the, what is now created is a subculture of rejection of the authority of government to make certain decisions, a sense that government as a concept has evolved to a point of being illegitimate by taking illegitimate action that reaches illegitimately into the lives of people and that therefore laws no longer apply to the true resistance. It's a very American brand of politics, which again tells you about the migration of these ideas Mm. and the way that they live in subcultures outside of any kind of mainstream or water cooler conversation. There is nothing the mainstream media or mainstream politics really can do to quell this because it has its own digital subculture now that that exists outside of space. It's in a space without a space that we probably call the internet. And I don't know that that can be unseated. So whatever issue, your observation that as the virus got less deadly, this ramped up is instructive, I think, because it's almost like as the stakes have kind of become lower, the politics ramps up because it can always find the next thing to latch itself onto. Now, that doesn't mean I expect a Trumpian prime minister in Australia. Preferential voting probably sees to that, so does compulsory voting. But that's not an element of politics that I can see going away in a hurry. Why am I wrong about that? Mm-hmm. Look, um, there are obviously aspects of what you say because it's so coherent, because it's articulate, and I think in many respects brilliant, that are very, very difficult to argue with. There are three things, however, that I think I'd hold out, and let me just do it very, very briefly. The first one is that I think it's worth pointing out, and I think it's probably worth giving a little bit more emphasis to your original hunch than maybe you yourself are even giving it credit for, which is that this comes at the end, this kind of what I described as a last gasp, this comes at the end of two years of exhaustion. And it's not, I mean, I know lots of people in Melbourne who have actually described Melbourne as a traumatized city, and that doesn't seem, that doesn't seem beyond the pale to me. That seems like a pretty correct description which just means that oftentimes, especially when, you know, we find ourselves just individually lashing out at things that we would otherwise love or otherwise care for at moments of real exhaustion or strain or stress. 
Um, I don't want to engage in anything like collective or pop psychology, but it does strike me that the fact that this is happening now, at the moment when things are finally beginning, we're at this tipping point, if you like, where things really are receding, when something like normal life really is beginning to assert itself. But there's that moment of crisis. There's that moment of decision. And that moment of decision has come in the form of various vaccine mandates and now in the form of the pandemic legislation that's been tabled at the Victorian Parliament, which then fuels all of the concerns, concerns that you articulated brilliantly, I think, Waleed, about government overreach, about the specter, the threat of quote-unquote tyranny, which I, anyway, we can come back to that in a second when we talk about freedom. But I, I do think that why now is a really important question. And I think that level of exhaustion is important to reckon with. The other thing, so this is something we've talked about repeatedly on this show. Um, I, I've been, I mean, one of the worst things that I think could have happened at any stage of the last two years, and I'm very grateful that for the most part it hasn't happened here, is for the virus to be politicized. I think the extent to which we've seen broad bipartisan consensus and cooperation at federal and state levels, if there's sometimes been tension between the federal and state levels, um, I think that's been really, really important. And what that begins to signal, I think, is that for there to be real, um, for there to be real refusal, for there to be real protest against the measures that have been taken, there's n- there there are no there are very few political mechanisms for those forms of protest, those forms of rejection of measures taken, to take a kind of coherent form. And so what we've had to see then is for there to be a kind of aggregation of discontent, an aggregation of refusal. So those people who've poured out into the streets, we have no sense of what it is that they're for. We have no sense what goals, what ends they may well want to be pursuing, what they might want to have in place of what it is that they're against. What we are very clear about is what it is that they're opposing, what it is that they're refusing. They're refusing, for the most part, although not entirely, they're refusing government mandates. They're refusing the powers that are being accorded to the Victorian state government in particular in the form of the proposed pandemic bill. Now, you and I have seen repeatedly, Willie, that the easiest thing in the world in modern democratic politics, especially when there's been this fragmentation of sources of authority, when there's been this fragmentation of our trust in, in media and the way in which we receive much less process and put into effect the information that we seek out, we've seen that it's very, very easy to aggregate discontent, to aggregate disaffection. But once that has been aggregated, it's very, very, very difficult without some kind of coherent political form, without some kind of coherent voice to give it common expression. It's very difficult for that aggregate to remain, for it to hold together. And so it just strikes me that once this group of people comes together, the worst thing that we can do is to brand them all with the same label to tar them all with the same brush, as was done, for instance, in September, when what did Bill Shorten describe many of the protesters as kind of uh, uh, man-baby Nazis? Oh, that's right. Well, yeah, yeah, which, I mean, that, that, you know, to my mind, that's the worst, the least productive thing that could be done here. To kind Especially of give that because total... actually, if you look at the protests, it's a very broad group of people who've gathered in that. It really is. The gallows Absolutely. people are not 
the same as a whole lot of other people who would constitute the majority of the protest, right? No, so that, that's exactly. I right. want to register my agreement with that point, and I and I apologise if I gave the impression that I I wanted to brand them all the same. No, I don't. I don't think you did, but I, it has become a kind of sport in a great deal of high-minded and yes. I think contemptuous political commentary that I think we need to reject sure. altogether. I'll this this brings me very, very quickly to, to my last point. Do you remember, it was in the second year of the show, we had a wonderful long conversation with Martha Nussbaum about the impen- sorry, the Supreme Court judgment that legislated on the lawfulness of same-sex marriage in the United States. One of the things that Martha Nussbaum pointed out, it's stayed with me ever since, is that it wasn't moral arguments that won the day. It wasn't even legal arguments or political arguments that won the day. It was the lived experience of persons with same-sex persons that, that allayed fears and that gave the overwhelming sense that all of the doomsaying about, about marriage being dissolved if this is legalized really simply wasn't going to be the lived reality afterwards. It seems to me, Waleed, that, that in Victoria in particular, I think other states as well, this kind of, we're at this pivot point, we're at this fulcrum where once, once vaccine mandates, and you and I have had discussions on the show about the lack of wisdom, I think, of vaccine mandates, when I think yep. there were other less high-handed measures that were in place and that were available. But once those vaccine mandates are in place, once vaccines become part of our daily lives, once something like social civic normality returns, and once something like politics is normal also returns without emergency measures... I think there's going to be something about that lived experience that allows people to take a great collective breath and allows something like the democracy of the ordinary, the democracy of the everyday, to simply reassert itself. Before we get to that point, however, it seems to me to some extent expected that there's going to be this great convulsion. There's going to be this great upheaval that says that what comes next is potentially doom and that all that really needs to happen is for governments to continue to practice, I think, some of the things that have been discovered in common over the course of the last two years, to use language that is deliberately moderate, to take measures that are deliberately moderate in order to speak to, without giving sucker to, some of the more extreme fears that are, that are being held out. It seems to me that the more that this is politicized or the more that it's spoken of in high moral language, no, there's the more that this threat, something permanently changing our politics. I think that actually has, may well have the effect of exacerbating the debate, of ratcheting up the panic, and of ruling out the prospect of calm, moderate political language measures and discourse that could really begin, I think, allaying some of the fears that are here being expressed. I feel like you've ended up making my argument. Anyway... We'll see how it plays out over the rest of the show. You've uh, just been listening to The Minefield if you've just joined us on the radio. You can listen on the radio, but you can also catch us as a podcast anytime you like on the ABC Listen app or by following The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. Andrea Carson is Associate Professor in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy at La Trobe University. Last time we had Andrea on the show, we did one of my very, very favorite episodes ever of the minefield on the phenomenon of clipification. After yes. uh, her, her brilliant performance, how could we not have her back on the show? Andrea, thank you so much for your return visit to the minefield. 
Thank you, Scott, and nice to be here. Nice to be with you too, Lubwale. I'm glad you added that as an addendum. It's <laughs> <laughs> very kind of you. So, look, let's, there, there are all sorts of things for us to pick apart here. I'm curious that Waleed said that I just made his case for him because I didn't think I did, but maybe I did anyway. <laughs> um, Andrea, let's begin with something that I think you've been really observant about, and that's the, I mean, we, we look at the protests that took place in Melbourne in September, we look at the ones that have taken place over the last two weeks. We see the ubiquity of American symbols, rhetoric, flags, paraphernalia, some of it taken directly from the US, quite physically, quite literally, some of it simply alluding to. And can I add to that, Scott, the sudden reference to amendments to the Constitution, which is yes. not a language that Australians have ever, ever spoken. No, ever. no, in, in, including protesters claiming constitutional rights that aren't present in the, Ameri- in, in the Australian Constitution. Yeah. So, so I think some of us see that and we kind of, my God. But then for all of that, there are these vast differences between the, the American and the Australian experiences, both of the pandemic and of the political responses to the pandemic. How do you see this seeming conflation and these vast differences that have taken place over the last two years? Well, just to provide a little bit of context, one of the things that I've been doing with colleagues at the University of Melbourne and also the United States Studies Centre has been looking at the Australian experience and the American experience of trust in politicians, trust in media and responses to COVID social distancing measures and other measures to mitigate the spread of disease. And we've had three distinct data points with a large representative uh, study of the populations in both countries. And the last one was in June that's just passed. The first one was in March 2020 and then one in between September last year. And what we've seen, and you've spoken a lot about this in the program, it's been really interesting conversation, is that trust started really high. And this is typical of what we see in chronic crises where publics turn to their states' people and to the media because they need information. So we also found that media use was really high and trust in politicians was pretty high. But we saw some market differences between the US and Australia as you might expect. And that is that the US is a much more polarised society than Australia is. There's very big differences between how Democrats think about their politicians and the media and how Republicans think about it. So to give you an example, Republicans' trust in the media was about 20% compared to 75, 80 for Democrats. In Australia, we didn't see these great partisan divides. We saw some partisan divides, but not to that extent. What we also saw was that trust in experts in Australia was really high, up in the high 90s, and had no partisan difference. In the US, we saw a 20-point gap in partisan difference, but still high. Republicans were still up around 80%. None of this is surprising, really, when you think that at the time the pandemic began, you had Trump outwardly disagreeing with their chief health officer, Fauci, uh, in contest and dispute with him. We didn't see that in Australia. In Australia, we saw a very consensual public sphere. By and large, we saw the state politicians, the federal politicians coming together under a national cabinet, agreeing on measures. And we saw most of the media giving very similar messages and quoting the experts. Of course, there's always some outliers. We don't see that in the US. And this is another point that I think is really important in the difference between the two countries. Australia, even though we have a small media, we have a mixed news diet. 
that we found looking at the two populations. So, for example, when we asked people what their top media outlets were, we will see a mix of Facebook, of News Corp, of Nine, ABC, being the most important media outlets that people go to in the course of the week. We don't see that in the US. We see that the Democrats consume left-wing media and have next to no cross-pollination of right-wing media and the same. So we see it with the Republicans consuming right-wing media. So it reinforces those echo chambers. Now, to get to your point, Scott, um, where have we landed now that we're nearly two years into this pandemic? We're starting to see some of those partisan patents in the US starting to show up in Australia. We're seeing a pulling apart or a fraying of some of this consensuous, a consensual public sphere. I won't say it's as dissensual as the United mm. States, and I really hope that we don't get there, but we're seeing it pulling apart. The premiers and the prime minister starting to actively disagree. We're seeing our politicians disagreeing, and we're also seeing this contagion effect from the US, um, which has been going on before the pandemic, with politicians weaponizing the use of fake news and misinformation and disinformation for their own political ends. These are disturbing patterns for me to be seeing as a political scientist, and I think this is where we're landing in this debate that you and Walid are having about is this something that's more emblematic of something much greater than coming to the exhaustion and end of a pandemic? Are we seeing the democracy in demise in many respects? And it's a complicated picture. I, I can go on more, but I'd like to hear your reactions and comments. Well, I would say, Andrea, that. you kind of articulated what I was trying to say about the seeding of it. So I want to be clear what I mean by that. I don't mean everyone who was at the protests has this view or is radicalised in some way. I just mean that it's taken root. And it might be a small number, but of course it starts that way. And... It may or may not grow to really worrying proportions, but I guess what I'm saying is I don't think it's going anywhere in the next 20 years of Australian politics. You can't, because the the things you've mentioned there, the sort of, I guess what you've done in that study, right, is you, you've identified the kind of structural indicia of polarisation, so where you get your news from, as an example, right? That's only becoming more and more fragmented. I can't see it becoming more and more coherent over time anywhere in the developed world and certainly not in Australia, right? I mean, would you agree with me at least on that, that we're not heading to a more sort of coherent model of information intake so that we're cross-pollinating more, that actually what's going to happen is it'll be smaller and smaller, more and more curated ways of taking in your view of the world? I think that's right. I think the assumptions we have about the media ecosystem are at a turning point, that this idea even of um, a, a common imagination of a national public sphere, we now, we've had multiple public spheres for some time. Mm -hmm. The saving grace, I guess, for Australia has been that we have had that mixed diet and we've got a national broadcaster, which is that people still have the opportunity to get the same information. But your broader point's right, Waleed, we're in a much more fragmented media environment than we were last century, and this is much more extreme in the US than it is in Australia, yes. and I think it's something we should guard against in Australia, um, That and, and this is where political leadership comes into play, that there's a real role here for compassionate and strong political leadership that um, doesn't fan the flames of frustration, and at the moment we're not seeing that. Right. So, yes, we have certain protections in Australia. I've mentioned 
preferential voting and compulsory voting, which I think are really crucial to the moderation of Australian mm-hmm. politics, for better or for worse, or for better and for worse, but that's that, that's the way that works. The the media intake stuff is interesting, right, and it's inter, yeah, interaction with politics. So if we are to say that there is something that mainstream politics could do to prevent the growth of this, this is where I think I run aground in my thinking on it. Um, I say this to both of you. I'm interested in you can, if you can set me straight. Because on the one hand, yes, of course, more inclusive leadership that is understanding of the sense of alienation that people who are protesting against a lot of these things feel would be good. Right? An idea of um, trying to maintain a broad church of the nation, that would be great. But if you are talking about... a a media ecosystem or, or a news ecosystem, or not even that, a public affairs ecosystem that is so curated now, it seems to me that unless you have near total consensus in mainstream politics, it almost doesn't matter, does it? What political leaders, particularly of the major parties, have to say about it. Because you're actually talking about a conversation that happens either in their absence or at the margins of our political culture that self-selects out the mainstream because it's the mainstream and therefore illegitimate. So it's a self-reinforcing logic. So, for example, I think Scott Morrison didn't meet the calling last week when he was so reluctant to say anything about the protests and then when he did, he, he wasn't as strident as perhaps he could have been with some of the more extreme political expressions on display. I simultaneously think that had he been more forthright, it wouldn't have made a difference. Mm. And that's what worries me, is that it's it's baked in now. There's a kind of self-reinforcing logic here that can only really, really be undone by changing the whole informational ecosystem, which of course is an impossibility. I, I think some of that is correct, but I also think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that when we're talking about these protests, we're talking a couple of thousand people. And we're also talking about um, the right to assembly, that in fact, the fact that these people can protest and are protesting is part inherent to a democracy. Where it falls down is where um, violence comes in and threats of violence, which is unacceptable, and I think that's where we're seeing some of the US contagion. I also think we shouldn't underestimate the trust that people do have in medical experts and that maybe we don't have a, a people consuming the same media, but there is an obligation upon professional journalists to be going to those that have evidence-based knowledge and repeating that information above emotional information. Um, and then it becomes less important if we're all consuming the same media if there's an adherence to professional journalist values. Yeah, but you can't stop the person who, you know, I'm a nurse or I'm a doctor and let me do my video from... Um, you know, my, my ward where I talk about all these people dying from the vaccine and then connect that to a mandate that means the government's trying to kill you or something. I mean, th- th- there's no journalistic response that works in that sphere, is there? I don't know if Scott wants to come in on that point. I'm not sure I completely <laughs> understand it. But I guess well, sorry, I'm, I'm, saying... I'm just referring to this thing that happens on social media quite a lot, right, where yeah. a video is circulated of someone in scrubs or who says they're a doctor. I don't know if they are or they're not. Um, or an open letter is written by somebody and they're saying, 
they're, they're running vaccine misinformation. But you're talking about individuals, and I think we need to go to authoritative sources such as the World Health Organization um, rather than individual experts going to those that have got a level of authority. Oh, I agree with I agree with that, but my point is once the conspiratorial logic sets in, you can't undo it with authority. By definition, right. you can't because they're part of the conspiracy. I understand what you're saying, but I'm not sure we should give up trying. And I think we're talking right at the fringe here. I think if we maintain a level of journalistic value and an understanding of putting evidence-based information into the public sphere and also for our social media organisations and platforms to mitigate against mis- and disinformation um, by prioritising, as they have been doing, turning the algorithm back towards authoritative sources and also using a series of other measures, whether it's fact-checking, media literacy, um, having uh, having mechanisms on the sites to be able to check the sources. This is always going to be a multi-pronged approach. It can't be solved by just one solution and it needs collaboration right across all the stakeholders that are involved, whether that's academics, journalists, governments and, of course, civil society. If you just joined us, the voice you just heard there belongs to Andrea Carson, Associate Professor in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy at La Trobe University. Our guest on this week's edition of The Minefield will lead Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. All right, Scott, I've banged on the line. Oh, yeah, this is this is really interesting to me. Can I just say that I think the two of you have just made the most conclusive case for why it is that serious news media organizations need to get out of the social media business and distribution business altogether, the social media-based uh, distribution platforms. Uh, I mean, if if people want to say, if people want to believe that the anecdotal is the true truth-telling, that the, that the person with the inside information in the scrubs is belling the cat, is blowing the whistle, then, okay, they can go to Facebook or they can go to YouTube or wherever to get that. But the very fact that we are mixing together serious news reporting with stuff that has the appearance of seriousness but is anything but, it seems to me that we are not elevating that kind of material by putting good news content on those sites. We, I mean, this is this for me is the conclusive argument for why we need to create a very, very harsh separation between those two. Um, that's that, that's a slightly off topic, but it's not too far off topic. One of the things that's actually bothered me about uh, representative politics for as long as I can remember, it's when nations reach that moment where we say that we're in a crisis and this is above politics. This is not a time for politics. In other words, we can engage in all manner of sniping and smut and mutual vilification uh, in times of ordinary politics. But when the stakes get really high, then we really need to come together and do things together and embrace more forms of democratic political civility. Um, that's always seemed to me to be BS because what it's saying is that the the everyday operations of democratic politics are of fundamentally no consequence. These are platforms for ego and avarice and other vices. Whereas when the stakes are really down, we lose the facade of politics and we really do come together. Part of the experience, I think, of the last two years is there 
in fact, was not that great a difference between the kind of information that one could receive on the ABC and the kind of information one would receive from the Murdoch press uh, concerning COVID-19. There was not that great a separation, what you would, uh, a difference, a gap, the advice, the measures that you would hear from Labour premiers and from coalition. That's not true in Victoria. It was not true in Victoria, but that was because of, I mean, there is a kind of politicization of of the uh, political situation there that didn't exist, I think, to this, quite the same extent. Yes, elsewhere, but it's significant, right? Because Victoria is the epicenter of a lot of this consternation. Yeah, yeah. I guess what what I'm saying is part of the experience of the last two years is that we're not as far away from each other as we thought. That there are ways for media organizations, for political parties, to come together and to do things in a manner that nurtures the conditions of our common life that safeguards the health and well-being of the body politic and that conveys information in a way that is measured, that does its very, very best. I mean, do you, do you both remember, for instance, for the, first two, uh, for the first six months of last year, the advice that we all got and that most of us practiced, I think quite scrupulously, not to use language like anti-vax because of the way that that needlessly vilified or the, the way that it pushed to the margins those who might be, quote-unquote, vaccine-hesitant. I think those are all vital measures for the safeguarding of the conditions of our common life. And what that tells me is that in times where we really believe that our democratic conditions are fragile but are also precious, we can engage in forms of behavior, in forms of discourse that don't tip over into overly moralizing or vilifying our enemies, demonizing positions that are opposite to ours. There are moments that we have access to in Australia that are simply not possibly in the United States, where we shed those, those things, where it's not a matter of simply reverting to experts, but it's also a matter of showing one another the kind of deference, the care, the common concern that are essential to any democratic and, and any healthy, healthy de- democratic. So I think part of the experience of the last two years is that we are capable of that, that media organizations are capable of it, that politicians can, in fact, engage in it. I think what it also tells us is that we think so little of ordinary time, of ordinary circumstances, that we think that those conditions, those times, those ordinary circumstances can be ceded to those who want to bring about various forms of violent or otherwise extreme revolution. Scott, I love what you're saying, but perhaps can I pull the lens back a little bit, which might speak a little more to Waleed's point. And that is that for the last 15 years, we've had a sustained turn towards a liberalism in both democracies and non-democracies, according to democracy industry organisations such as Freedom House and also IDEA, another global measure of democracy. And they're calling this the long democratic recession, which Mm, has deepened. And it's been exacerbated by COVID. And one of the problems with the pandemic, and, and I love what you're saying, I think what we've seen in Australia has been true up to a certain point where we have seen this support and consensual public sphere. But unfortunately, what we've also seen is political expediency, where yes. governments and uh, non-state actors are using COVID as a way to be able to further their own Um, political ends, and we see this under the cover of new laws that have been passed. Uh, Human Rights Watch has documented in over 90 countries how 
anti-fake news laws have been implemented in this period under the guise of COVID to crack down on misinformation, whereas in fact what they've done has been to quell the voice of journalists and of political dissidents and opposition. And even in Australia, International Idea has put a watch on some of the measures that have been um, put in place in Australia, quite extreme measures, where we've lost our freedoms. Um, There's been increased government surveillance and um, incursions on our civil rights and access to justice and social rights with court hearings being postponed, uh, limiting of public gatherings, including mass protests and other restrictive measures. So, This is what people are protesting about, perhaps not in an articulate way, but a lack of agency perhaps that comes out of the end of two years of feeling somewhat oppressed. And it's why we're seeing it as part of a global movement as well, because there has been um, this greater turn towards illiberalism. What's interesting about that, though, is if you look at the hard end of the protest we're talking about, they're actually self-consciously liberal in the language and the concepts they're drawing on, right? So I don't know what that means for the Well, it's a paradox in many ways, isn't it? I I mean, the fact that they're protesting for uh, more freedom in a way that is unsafe, that can lead to super spreader events, which will only go to hinder freedom uh, if it leads to greater spread of the virus, is really problematic. But it also speaks to the fact that there's still democratic measures in place that they are able to have assembly and to protest against these measures. We've had, we have had this odd sort of marriage between libertarianism and sort of nativism. It's, you know, with the government intervention that that sometimes implies, which is a really interesting thing. I suppose what I would say, if I was arguing against the position I've broadly been articulating, maybe, (laughs) maybe that argument would go something like this. Look, Waleed, what's your problem? Australia is heading rapidly towards 90% double dose. In some states, it'll get up to 95%. That, by any measure, is an extraordinary achievement. Vaccination rates, particularly in a context like this, are really the ultimate litmus test of trust in government. And therefore, Australia, having one of the highest vaccination rates in the world, would have one of the highest levels of trust in government in the world. Um, And really what you're seeing is to make Scott's argument, just the last gasp of a very small group of people who are not politically relevant in the sense that they will not shape political culture for the next few years. That's probably the argument that I would use against me. I'm not sure I would agree with my counter self because this is a very strange moment in the show, isn't it? Um, because, <laughs> uh, because I think in the end there is a difference between vaccination rates and then the question of government overreach in the form of mandates that mean that you get a disillusionment that extends beyond simply those who've been vaccinated and that that has the potential to grow, which I think is what I'm, I'm worrying about. But I can see this sort of opening. I can see this argument that says what, what I'm reacting to here is, is a media creation of a spectre rather than a genuine spectre that exists within our body politic. <laughs> Well, I think the federal election will be telling to see whether some of the fringe politicians who are playing up this level of protest, and I'll throw Craig Kelly and Clive Palmer into that category, to see what happens to their vote share. And you might remember in 2016, Clive Palmer's vote share was about 5.6% and it fell to the mid 3.5 or 6% after spending uh tens of millions of dollars on campaigning. You did turn the election in Queensland, though. Hmm. 
Uh, there might be several factors that turned the election in Queensland, not just the preference flows of Clive Palmer. But nonetheless, he didn't get any lower house seats uh, or even upper house seats. And I think it shows that while we have a lot of noise going on, the Australian population, they're not fools and they see through a lot of this. And I think the high vax rates speak to that, if that can be a proxy measure for trusting government. But um, let's see what that primary vote is for those politicians that are deliberately trying to um, create disharmony using by politicising COVID. Yeah, I mean, preferential voting, of course, is very, very important here. Can I just also point out, we haven't, I mean, well, he gestured towards it earlier in the show, but it does strike me that Scott Morrison is trying to do something similar here, as John Howard did with respect to One Nation uh, in the mid-1990s. I mean, I, 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 I share some of Waleed's dismay over what the Prime Minister actually said. The most concerning to me was when he said it's time for governments to step back and for Australians mm. to take their lives back. Yep. That sounds yep. to me, I mean, that's a campaign slogan. Yeah, I think it's I one thing to sort of express sympathy for those who feel as though the mandate's unfair right? and I understand your position, et cetera. But I think that sort of anti-government rhetoric, that's uh, that's opening a very different vein. Yeah. yeah. And also positioning the federal government in opposition to the state governments. That That's yeah. also, that's not going to help anything. I guess just the final thing that, that I would say, you know, to some extent, when you see these extreme forms of rhetoric that we've seen over the last two weeks, the conditions for that use of rhetoric are created by the kind of rhetoric we use in normal times. I've never been a fan of violent imagery or language or rhetoric in in federal politics. Uh, speaking of kind of you know killing bills, assassinating prime ministers, hopefully hopefully this brings us to the point where the kind of language that we use moderates and in fact enables the public to see even our political opposition as members that are uh, equally worthy of respect and a hearing. Mm. We are, I'm afraid, out of time. Andrea, wonderful to have you on the show again. We'll um, get you back on at the next point of existential crisis in our body politic, if that's okay. Thank you for a really thoughtful conversation. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. You can stay. Andrea Carson is Associate Professor in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy at La Trobe University. We're done for this week on The Mindfield, but we'll see you next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.